Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with another Wednesday Night Wars edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. Getting over is back in what has been a busy week over here in our studios. And when I say studios, I really just mean my home office. Uh, We had our WWE episode this past Tuesday, breaking down everything that happened on SmackDown and Raw. It does seem like a few of you missed that episode, so do not forget to go back and listen to that. On Wednesday this week, the Silver King dropped an exclusive one-on-one conversation with Renee Paquette, the former Renee Young from WWE. I'm just going to say it candidly. I may not have said it on that show itself. It is my number one favorite interview that I've ever done with someone in the wrestling world. This is my third different podcast that I've been on. I've interviewed people uh, for the written word. I've certainly done multiple audio interviews with you know, really the biggest stars in wrestling. I've spoken to the Drew McIntyres and Roman Reigns and Becky Lynch. It really runs the gamut. And this interview with Renee Paquette, it, it goes over an hour. Uh, we discuss everything about her life and career, what's next, what happened in WWE. And I really hope that if you, for some reason, only listen to this episode of the podcast, that you make sure you pause or when you're done today, go back and listen to my conversation with Renee Paquette. I would greatly appreciate it. Also, please do not forget to share these shows. You can retweet us. You can send your own unique tweets with our handle and links to our shows, however you want to do it on social media, Facebook, Reddit, Twitter. Let people know about your favorite wrestling podcast and some of the favorite things that happen on this podcast, namely the Renee Paquette interview. So uh, again, yeah, you know, listen to our damn shows. That's number one. Number two, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And number three, do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio and drop us a five-star rating and review. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for this damn show. It's the giving season. We came out of Thanksgiving. Don't have any new reviews since then. We're almost at Christmas and Hanukkah and the December holiday season. No new reviews for the month of December. Folks, Apple Podcasts, it's very quick. Hit the five star, then go, this is a great show. Adam's the greatest podcaster of all time. That's all you have to say. That's it. It's very easy. Uh, I would appreciate it. So we have a loaded show, though, for you today, because not only are we going to talk about NXT, not only are we going to talk about AEW, we actually have to go to Tuesday And talk about Impact Wrestling, which is not something I thought I would be saying on this show. Now, did I watch the entire two hours of Impact? I did. Do I regret watching the entire two hours of Impact? I do. And it's really nothing against them. I saw someone tweeted me that Impact was better than Raw this week. I mean, it wasn't. I I don't know what to tell you. The product just really is not that good. They have some good wrestlers. There are some people. Chris Bay, for example, I think is really exciting. And, you know, if it was a two hours of just his matches, maybe I would watch the show, but that's not exactly what we're getting. But what I am going to do today in this unique episode of Getting Over is I'm going to start with Impact Wrestling, the AEW stuff that happened on that show, transition into AEW Dynamite, and then we're going to hit NXT coming out. You know, this is basically the show after Winter is Coming uh, for AEW. This is the show after... War Games 2020 
for NXT kind of resetting their entire lineup, really, as we head into the end of 2020 into 2021. So there's a lot that has happened on both of these shows, which makes me think today's show may be slightly longer than the Thursday shows normally are, but there is a lot to get to. As I said, let's not waste any time. Let's get right into it. So let's start with Tuesday night and what happened on Impact. Before we even saw Kenny Omega, Tony Khan did a paid advertisement buying space on the show that I thought was hysterical. It was snarky as hell. Tony had his fist curled up under his biceps to push them up to make him look bigger and more muscular, which by the way, if I was on TV in a short sleeve polo shirt, I would have done the exact same thing. That's not a criticism. I'm just pointing out how funny it is. That's usually something that kids do, but I, I, th- I thought it was funny that Tony did that. Uh, he did say he would not be an on-screen character for AEW one year ago, but clearly he's not going to live up to that. The question is, is this going to be frequent or was just this just a particularly smart spot where using Tony and Tony Schiavone made a lot of sense? I'm hoping that's the case because I liked when Khan kind of came out and said, I'm not going to be on TV. This isn't about me. This is about the wrestlers. And I know there's always the opportunity to use authority figures in wrestling, but you have other people. You have all the executive vice presidents. Cody can play that role. You have Jerry Lynn, the backstage agent. There's other people that they can use. And I don't really want Khan being a part of the regular TV product. And it's not that he did a bad job. I said, again, this was really good stuff from top to bottom. Funny, snarky, smart. It was really strong. But I like when we catch him in gorilla position and like the Young Bucks are throwing money at him or someone pushes him over or something like that happens where it's just, oh yeah, Tony's here rather than I'm Tony Khan, the owner of AEW. We had that for years in Vince McMahon. We had it in WCW, even though they were not the owners, but we had it with Eric Bischoff and later Vince Russo. It's really, really tired. And I would prefer... I think from a creative standpoint, AEW not go in that direction. But this was really funny. That was really good. The second AEW real instance that happened on the show was the end. It was the quote unquote main event of Impact, which had Josh Matthews go to a really nice touring van, bus, whatever you want to call it, to interview Kenny Omega, the new AEW champion, and Don Callis. Rich Swan, who's the Impact champion, Uh, tried getting into the parking lot. He was stopped by security because he's not on the champion's list. He's like, I am the champion. Obviously, the security guard was talking about Omega. Uh, They met on the tour bus. Callis changed the title nameplate and Omega made a joke, a pretty funny joke, about Ambrose and Matthews being a Stanford stooge. Callis did most of the talking. He said that his last five years in wrestling were all part of a plan to be beside Omega and change the course of wrestling history, not once referring to New Japan, but twice now referring to AEW. Omega played off the cheating as justified because Moxley hit Callus first with with, uh, his hand, then therefore Omega used the microphone. And then Omega went on a pretty great rant about being in the best matches wherever he's been everywhere in the entire world. Omega said that they went to Impact because he's a collector, insinuating but not saying that he could go after the Impact title he then did the adieu, goodbye, goodnight, bang thing for the first time since AEW TV has started. I believe he did it on one of those free pay-per-views. I forget which one it was. I think it was Fight for the Fallen. And he did Boing, and it was stupid, and we we ripped him for it. And he hadn't done it since then. So Omega is now the cleaner again. He's now doing his goodbye. 
you know, that's fun. And that's stuff that we like to see from Kenny. As far as Impact goes, it really was a waste of two hours watching Impact. I truly got, and I'm not trying to crap on their product, I got more enjoyment from the commercial breaks on Twitch where I got to see all the old Impact moments that I've never seen before because I never watched Impact. So it's like they were playing a a greatest hits. You got the Scott Steiner promo, Kurt Angle matches. I mean, people that you knew, they were playing during these commercial breaks. So I felt like that was more entertaining than the product I actually got on the screen. And if you're gonna juxtapose your current product with better content during its commercial breaks, that's not really the best look for your product. So Impact really, I'm not saying they shouldn't do that, but they should really think about like what to do during those commercial breaks on Twitch. I'd almost rather you catch me up on the current product than just show classic stuff that is really much, much better than what you're currently doing now. There really was no payoff to the Omega appearance, but I didn't think there would be. So I wasn't disappointed. Callous explanation, that was good enough. Getting Omega to cut a promo and as I said, fully becoming the cleaner again was good as well. My note in the moment was I wish they had just done this on Dynamite. But as you'll see, really right now we'll talk about it, they basically did. So we'll move over to AEW Dynamite and what happened on the show regarding Kenny Omega. So Omega arrives at Daly's place in a two-seater helicopter. Two seats, meaning the pilot and Kenny Omega. Then they did a cut and they came back and Don Callis was coming out of the helicopter afterward. I don't think anyone picked this up, which I found really freaking funny, but there was no possible way for Callis to have been in that helicopter. So they just kayfabed the entire thing. I couldn't get past how silly that was to do in the moment. I was just like racking my brain at the start of the show. This isn't really a criticism. I just think it's, no one thought of that. It's really funny. Um, It was literally impossible basically for him to have been in the helicopter with Omega and the pilot already in there. Uh, They refused to speak to Alex Marvez outside and Tony Schiavone in the ring said he hasn't been more disgusted with anyone's actions in wrestling since 1983. I mean, this guy hasn't been watching wrestling, and he certainly wasn't watching the NWO and the shit that was happening in WCW, if he believes that to be true. But okay, dramatic effect, Tony, go ahead. Callis said uh, Khan was welcome for getting screwed, and he welcomed him to the wrestling business almost as if this was his first lesson. I loved that line. Callus was absolutely incredible there. Uh, and Callus then kind of repeated everything he said on Impact, but he was killer on the mic. I mean, you really don't get better than Don Callis, Paul Heyman, in terms of guys in that role on the microphone. He's all-timer in that role. Omega was great on the mic too. Uh, he said he doesn't care if the fans fell for his lies or Tony Khan fell for his lies. It mattered that John Moxley fell for them. Omega promised more surprises were to come. Callus cut him off so as not to spoil them. And then Omega said his goodbyes. He did the whole rendition again. This was very good, but it was a facsimile of what we got on Impact. We could have just seen Dynamite, ignored Impact altogether, and gotten the same value. So look, it's not a criticism really because it feels like AEW wanted to use Don Callis. And Impact's like, well, what are we going to get out of it? And I think the payback, ultimately, what we're going to see now is they just popped one rating for them. I know people were talking about, oh my God, this means AEW and Impact are going to work together. FTR is going to be able to fight the Motor City Machine Guns and we're going to get Kenny Omega versus Rich Swan. I'm not saying those things won't happen. It's very possible this opened a door that now they will slowly walk through. But it seems like in terms of this particular storyline, 
current plans and usage, it really does seem like that was it. And I may be proven wrong as soon as next week. Obviously, with Rich Swan on impact, they kind of teased that maybe something's going to happen there. But so far, it, without any additional build, with Kenny Omega kind of not really saying anything, it really just felt like almost booking on the fly. Not, not so much on the fly, but hey, let's just take care of this right now. And down the line, we'll see if anything else works. That's my opinion. That's how I took everything. Again, that's not bad because they did Impact the favor. Impact did a, a big rating uh, for Impact. It had a lot of viewers on, on Twitch. More people saw that product. I would assume that some of them will tune in next week to see if something happens. But my anticipation right now is that there won't be any further promotion for Impact in the short term. But again, I could be wrong. I'm just telling you, based on what I saw on Dynamite and social media, you would have expected them to already say something like that. But as of right now, they haven't. Moving into the second major storyline regarding AEW, that is Sting. Uh, And Sting was promoted to speak and explain why he's in AEW. Uh, That didn't really happen. Uh, Pretty classic wrestling stuff, promising something, promoting something, and not delivering on it. But I'm going to give AEW leeway here because they're rightfully trying to milk this. There's only so long that Sting explaining why he's here and and the the newness, the freshness of having Sting back in wrestling, that's going to wear off if he starts being on Dynamite every week. And it kind of seems like he's not going to be doing much most weeks he's on Dynamite. At least we'll get to that in a second. So you do want to kind of stretch it out. Maybe even next week, hey, after Sting still not telling us, This time, Tony Schiavone sits down with him one-on-one and gets him to spill why he's there. You know, there's more you can do with it. So I'm okay with them kind of not delivering on it, but I kind of wish they did because I tuned in for them to deliver on it. But again, you know, that's stuff that wrestling does, every company, every brand, and you kind of just have to live with it. Uh, Tony Schiavone, Arn Anderson, and Cody were all on the ring. Arn dipped out right away. Sting made Tony give him a hug and do the it's Sting thing. Uh, Sting chanted, this is awesome. It was honestly really corny shit for the first half of this. It did get way better, but the first half was corny, silly, um, gimmicky, uh, cartoony. It just, it was bad. It was really bad. I'm not a Sting guy. I should should probably preface this by saying, I, I already told you I'm not really an Undertaker dude, but I am not a Sting guy. Like I didn't grow up with WCW as my preferred program. When I did watch WCW, I was an NWO dude. I didn't really care about Sting. I thought he was always kind of kind of cliche as a good guy, superhero type of dude. Even when he did go to the black and white face paint, it just felt like it was, I don't know, uh, lame to me. So Sting was just never something I was into. So therefore this may hit differently for me than it does for you, potentially someone who is a huge WCW fan and is really excited to see Sting back. I'm judging this based like flat out. Is this entertaining to me in 2020? Not is this nostalgia for me from the late 1990s? So just so you know my perspective on the entire thing. So the first half, corny as shit. But like I said, it did get way better. Cody said he's been waiting to share a ring with Sting for a long time, but Sting said he's not here for him yet. He feels at home and pointed to Darby Allen in the rafters saying something feels really familiar. I like the idea that Sting could possibly find a kindred spirit, if you want to call it, in Darby, and perhaps even expose Cody 
for the heel that he actually is, that we all know he is watching, but he doesn't believe he is. Cody thinks he's a face. AEW still promotes him as a face, but we all know Cody's not really a good guy, at least in character, right? So that is a direction I think they could possibly go. Earlier in the show, Darby took a Rorschach test and that was way, way better than all of his really stupid, crappy vignettes that we've had in the past. This one I actually enjoyed. When he saw one of the ink blots that looked like Sting, he laughed. So now we're kind of tying these together. Going back to Sting, Cody said, welcome back. Sting circled him, said nothing's for sure, except that he signed to AEW and will be around the promotion for a long time. People chanted, welcome back, as if it was WCW. How is he back? I mean, he's back on TNT, but AEW is not WCW. But I guess maybe it is. And maybe that's no longer something that can be denied. They are very, they feel very WCW when you watch the program. Uh, The end was the best part by far with Sting pulling Cody close and saying, see ya around kid, almost messing up his hair as if he doesn't treat him with respect. Clearly they are going to build for a showdown between Cody and Sting in the future. I'm thinking it's gonna be a long-term build, maybe even all the way to next year at double or nothing. So it's gonna be interesting. I don't think we're going to see Sting wrestle that many times in AEW. I think it's gonna be, you know, three or four times a year, maybe a lot of tag team matches to kind of not have him do that much work, take that many bumps. So it's gonna be interesting to see what they do with this storyline, but it is curious. It's also curious that Cody's involved in like, three different feuds simultaneously with Taz, with Sting, now it seems with Shaq. Like it's it's a little much, but we'll get to all that stuff later. Uh, To wrap this up, Taz cut a promo backstage about Tony Khan needing to sign Sting just to save his boys from Team Taz. And Taz's son is now with that faction. It's now officially a faction with four wrestlers plus Taz. Uh, Moving on to everything else that happened on AEW. The show opened with the Young Bucks defeating the Hybrid 2. The athleticism and innovation was top-notch. Jack Evans did an awesome springboard moonsault off someone's back from the top turnbuckle, and then he did another one off the top rope itself, like a springboard version for a near fall. The Young Bucks then hit a doomsday device on the stairs and a double super kick, but that only got a 2.5. That should have ended the match. It was really strange. Rich Knox was the referee, so when Rich Knox is the referee for a tag team match, Everyone's legal. There were basically no tags, no rules until the very end. Suddenly there was a tag. It's just ridiculous. I I really hate it. I just, I know I talk about it a lot. I hate, I love AEW's tag team wrestlers. I hate when Rich Knox referees a match and there are just zero rules whatsoever. Evans hit a hurricanrana off the referee's bent knee, which was so cool. Then a 450 to the outside and Helico got a death roll. The Young Bucks then hit a Meltzer driver over the top rope to outside the ring. That was an insane spot. Then they hit two super kicks, finally tagged in after about 10 minutes, and then they hit the double BTE trigger for the win. The wrestling in this was incredible, but this match, for people who don't like this type of wrestling, was the definition of flippy shit. Like they did so many big aerial moves and no one sold anything at all. So that's the criticism. It's like, did I enjoy this? Yeah, I was entertained by it. Do I think it was a high quality match? No, it didn't really feel like there was psychology to it. It really just felt like, let's just do a bunch of gymnastics, not sell anything, not give finishes when we should and kind of get to the end. So, you know, I wasn't as thrilled with it as I think other people were, but it was very entertaining. And sometimes being entertaining is all that really matters. 
Uh, the Acclaimed tried to attack for some reason after the match. SCU came out and made the save. So that feels like it's going to be an eight-man match. But Tony Khan, I think on Twitter, after Dynamite made a 14-man match with none of these people involved for next week. So I don't even know what the hell's going on. Uh, FTR defeated the Varsity Blondes. They won with Goodnight Express. It was a boring match. I'm just being honest. Uh, they stared down Jurassic Express afterwards. Okay, so that's now going to be a feud. Looks like they're just trying to find things for FTR to do without being in the title picture, which, you know, you can argue maybe they shouldn't have taken the titles off them so quickly. That's a conversation for another day. Uh, Dustin Rhodes defeated 10 before the match. Hangman Page agreed to let John Silver and Alex Reynolds be his tag team partners next week against Private Party and Matt Hardy, but said he will not join Dark Order. Dustin won with a running bulldog. Evil Uno tried to recruit Dustin, saying he's the third most important Rhodes in AEW behind not just Cody, but also Brandy. He then asked if he wanted to be seven in Dark Order, but he was referring to Dustin's old WCW gimmick from like 1999, which was horrendous. Uh, Dustin slapped him. That was the end of that. As you can tell, there's many things on this show I did not necessarily enjoy. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal, speaking of, Brandy Rhodes and Tony Schiavone all spoke uh, together in like a sit-down interview. Shaq said he went back long ways with Jade Cargill, but didn't like how she broke Brandy's arm. Okay, good. So he doesn't advocate violence. Uh, Shaq said he'd love to see Jade and Brandy go at it on Dynamite, but that Shaq going after Cody, taking shots at him on Twitter was just fun and games. As Brandy was walking off, Shaq said she could learn something from Jade. So that got her upset, even though Brandy's not really a full-time wrestler. She grabbed water out of Shivani's hand, threw it in Shaq's face. Shaq made a face at the camera. That was funny. Like Shaq's like, did that really just happen type of face? That was pretty funny. But this really was a whole lot of nothing. So, you know, credit to AEW for getting a celebrity on the show. That's good for ratings. They're going to have Snoop Dogg on the show January 6th. He's promoting the go-home show on TNT. So these are all TNT tie-ins. Nothing at all wrong with doing that. But man, like... Shaq and Jade Cargill, who's really rough and and green in the ring. And it's just really not good. I think there's so much talent they have on that broadcast. If they feel like Shaq is going to get ratings, and if Shaq does get them ratings, then good for them, I approve. But was it good wrestling? No, it's not really. It wasn't really interesting to me, just being honest. Later in the show, Nyla Rose and Cargill were beating up Velvet Sky when Serena Deeb and another face woman, I forgot who it was, came in to stop them. The entire thing was 15 seconds. Then later in the show, they announced a tag team match next week, which was Serena Deeb and whoever whoever the other face was against Ivelisse and Diamante because they also got involved. But I was like, why aren't they fighting Nyla Rose and Jade Cargill? Because they were the ones attacking. So shouldn't they be the ones that they had the problem with? I don't know. Uh, but they're doing a tag team match next week. That will probably be the lone women's match. Uh, we'll talk about the women's wrestling a little bit later in this show. Uh, Inner Circle. Uh, did an ultimatum. Will they stay together or will they split up? Chris Jericho recapped their entire storyline. MJF said he's the issue right now, the friction, because people think he wants to break them up or take over, but he doesn't actually want to do that. Jericho didn't let MJF get away with bringing the towel down to the ring last week, which I loved. And, And something Chris Jericho said here was very smart. I don't think it was a shot at WWE, but if it was, it was a legitimate shot. In wrestling, so many times they play storylines where the viewer sees something that happens, but the other wrestlers are not aware of it. 
For example, take the Elias Jeff Hardy thing, right? In WWE. Jericho may not have known in the moment that MJF brought the white towel down, but you would assume considering he works for AEW that he's gonna watch Dynamite or at least be knowledgeable about what's actually happening in his workplace. And therefore he knew that MJF actually did bring the towel down and it was not Sammy who did it, despite in the moment Jericho blaming Sammy. So again, look at something like WWE with the Elias Jeff Hardy storyline, where it's like Elias still thinks Jeff Hardy's the one who hit him with the car, even though maybe it wasn't proven on WWE TV that Jeff didn't and Sheamus probably did, but it was proven that Jeff didn't, like they knew he wasn't drunk in the moment. So Elias, are you not watching the product? Are you not aware of what's been happening in the, during the six months that you've been gone? So I found it great that Jericho said, guys, like, why are we even playing this game? We already discussed that we all watch the product. I think that was very smart and and great. And I love that AEW doesn't do stuff like this. Hopefully that doesn't kind of pop off uh, on other occasions, you know, during different storylines. Uh, Ortiz played Peacemaker throughout the entire thing, told Sammy he's better than MJF and he knows it, which was a really good line and a really nice touch. So Sammy shook MJF's hand, but said if MJF does one more thing wrong, he's quitting inner circle. Wardlow and Jake Hager then got angry about how they keep staring at each other, blaming each other for being the ones perpetrating it. They agreed to stop, but then after they agreed to stop, instead they stared at each other side-eyed, which I made me cackle out loud, like legitimately laughing out loud on my couch at like 11.30 at night when I was watching it. Really, really funny. This hit all the right notes, and it was way better than the recent stuff. Wardlow and Hager in particular. I really loved that. The entire inner circle gimmick with this ultimatum was really good. I've been down on the inner circle stuff with MJF as of late, the last two or three weeks. I haven't really enjoyed it. This I loved. So they're back on the right track. Let's hope it continues. We'll jump over a couple of things just to get to the main event since we are talking about MJF. The dynamite diamond ring was on the line. MJF versus Orange Cassidy as the final two in the battle royal. Last week, early in the show, MJF cut a short, angry promo about his pinky being naked. There were like 15 people at ringside and a bunch of interferences in this match. Cassidy hit the beach break and two orange orange punches, got a couple of near falls. Everyone at ringside brawled. Miro came in wearing a Versace couture sweater that I can't even begin to describe. 100% Lana dressed him for the show. No way she didn't. He clears the top rope. Now, granted, you know, it's elevated because they're on the stage. I don't care. It was impressive. He cleared the top rope. It was incredible. Leveled Orange Cassidy with a huge clothesline. Apparently, Miro is still upset about his video game being destroyed. And MJF got the fall to win the dynamite ring back. Miro then just murdered a couple dudes for really no good reason as the show went off the air. I loved the aggression from Miro. Seeing him just kick some ass and be dominant is great. But the whole thing just felt like a freaking mess. There are so many times where AEW goes to these like, it's really old school WCW. Confusion, oh my God, what's gonna happen? You gotta tune in next week type of finishes. And I don't mind that necessarily, but I do care that they make sense. I get why Miro is still angry at Orange Cassidy in storyline, but it's really not a good reason for him to kind of come down and cost him the match and then just start murdering other security guards because he's so angry that he succeeded. Like, I didn't necessarily understand everything that they were doing in the moment, but was it cool to see Miro murder a couple dudes? Yeah, Miro's awesome. Like, we want him to be more like that and less of a 
dorky gamer who gets upset because his video game console got destroyed by a couple of guys who are best friends. We all want better for Miro. Uh, two more things from AEW, even though I already talked about the main event. Lance Archer and the Lucha Bros against Eddie Kingston, Butcher, and the Blade. Penta got put through a table before the match, making it a handicap match. The idea, at least that we're told, is that Penta is actually injured, so he wasn't able to compete. So they just decided to do that spot. Ray Phoenix was a psychopath as usual. Butcher and Blade hit a powerbomb neckbreaker to beat Phoenix. Then Archer was so angry that they got beat that he takes them out three on one, which is counter to the finish of the match where they were outnumbered and therefore they lost. But Archer's so strong, he could take all three of them out. Okay, whatever. Typical strong face deal. This match, I was really excited for it. It didn't really do anything for me because you didn't have Pentagon, Phoenix lost. And just kind of like, all right, we're still just going to keep going with this because I don't think they're going to resolve it until they can actually go three on three. And by the way, Lance Archer is in this match. Pac just came back. Why wasn't Pac there? This was a taped show. We did discuss he's probably only going to be there two weeks on, two weeks off. But if memory serves, we it's been like four weeks now. So shouldn't he be back? So maybe he's back next week. I don't know. But it's like this guy just came back. Where is he? Uh, and he fits in the storyline. He's the reason for this storyline, at least partially. And then last, the women's match, Abaddon defeated Tesha, I believe, Price, uh, 82 minutes into the show, so eight minutes earlier than we usually see the women. Uh, Abaddon no-sold everything and won in less than two minutes. Hikaru Shida came out to stop her from murdering the jobber by hitting Abaddon square in the head, right down the middle uh, with a kendo stick. Abaddon immediately sat up like The Undertaker. So that is your women's wrestling for AEW. So yeah, um, really, really interesting week for AEW. A lot of highs. The Kenny Omega stuff is really good. I'm extremely interested in the direction they're going. I'm very happy that Kenny Omega is the new AEW champion. The Sting stuff, I think I tweeted this. It was a mixture of 50-50 mixture of lame and really intriguing. Like a lot of the stuff at the beginning was kind of corny. But I also am like really curious what they're going to be doing with Sting and Cody and Darby and what is his actual reason for being there. There's a lot of stuff for us to find out. The rest of the show, you know, outside of really the inner circle stuff, I didn't love. I thought it was relatively weak. But I mean, the, there's no doubting the Young Bucks Hybrid 2 had a really exciting match. I would say that and the inner circle were the two big things I liked from the rest of the show. So I'd, I'd say 50-50, really solid, really good episode of AEW Dynamite, a step down from last week, but I don't know how you could ever live up to last week's show because last week's show was really good. Let's move over to NXT and talk about everything that happened on the show coming out of War Games. If you remember, I was not happy with NXT's go-home show last week. I thought AEW blew NXT out of the water and that definitely reflected in the ratings. It was going to anyway because of Omega Moxley and then when Sting showed up, you knew that was gonna pop. But the quality of program last week, AEW was superior and they deserved that big rating. This week, top to bottom, I actually thought NXT was a better show, but that doesn't mean I didn't have issues with NXT because I did. But uh, the go-home show I thought was weak. War Games I thought was extremely strong. A really, really damn good pay-per-view. So I was very excited to see what we would get from the show after this Wednesday. Really, NXT was focused around resetting all three major title pictures. And it really starts with the men because Finn Balor, the champion, was back and is seemingly ready for action 
for the first time in a couple months. He opened NXT, reset the landscape with the champion ready to compete again, but he was quickly interrupted as he was cutting his promo by Pete Dunne, then Kyle O'Reilly, and then Damian Priest. All three of them stepped up as potential challengers. It was an awkward set of promos between all of them. Balor dipped out of the ring, said he would defend the title at New Year's Evil on January 6th, but William Regal would have to be the one to pick the challenger. Just as he was about to leave, Karrion Cross music hits and Scarlet circles him. Balor said he'd fight Cross whenever Cross was ready. Then Priest grabbed the mic and asked Scarlet why she was always the one doing the dirty work, basically intimidating people, while Cross sat in the car. This probably would have worked in front of a crowd, but the crowds that they have at NXT, they really don't make a lot of noise, and the piped-in noise only does so much. It was slow, it was kind of low energy, it felt a little strange, but the context of what happened was good. It's good to know NXT now considers Pete Dunne, Kyle O'Reilly, and Damian Priest to be in that main event picture, along with Balor and Cross, and presumably still Johnny Gargano, you know, and Tommaso Ciampa. It's good to know that they see these guys at that level, especially Priest, because as I said, I my hope has been that he would move on from the North American title. This guy, he has an opportunity, by the way, and end of year awards on this podcast, most improved wrestler. He is a nominee, at least for me, in that category. And we're seeing this guy week by week take major, major steps. And I thought he did again on this show. We're gonna jump around here because I'm gonna try to, wrap this entire men's main event picture into one opening segment. Uh, A little bit later in the show, we had Pete Dunne defeat Killian Dane one-on-one. Dunne was backstage after the opening segment, said he wasn't going to wait for an opportunity when Dane attacked him as retribution for slamming his head in that SUV door a couple weeks ago. So they set a match later in the show. They beat the hell out of each other. Dane hit an avalanche fisherman suplex in a crazy spot. And then as Dane was about to win, Oni Lorcan and Danny Burch ran down to the ring. Drake Maverick chased them off with a chair, but then he turned his back and got attacked by them. That sent Killian Dane outside, distracting him. Dunn caught Dane when he got back in the ring with a kick and then hit the bitter end for the expected win. I didn't mind the unclean finish, given the fact that Dane is so strong, he's so big, and Pete Dunn just beating him after Dane clearly wanted revenge for having his head smashed in the car door, that what you can't just have Dane beat Dunn because Dunn is the one who needs to get elevated here. So they needed to wrap up that storyline while still move this forward. I thought it was smart. Now you have Dane and Maverick able to go after the tag team titles and you have Dunn potentially going for the NXT championship. Dunn, by the way, looks as good as ever. He is cut as all hell and he is ready to roll. A little bit later, this is more of the mid-card picture, but I'll explain while I'm, while I'm bringing it together. In a moment, we had a Gargano family celebration. All four of them hit the ring as Johnny Gargano danced with the North American title and Candice LeRae had a cast on her arm that is officially broken, by the way, from the War Games match. Gargano said that Austin Theory and Indy Hartwell were the future of NXT, who they are going to be showing The Way, which is the name of their new faction. Pretty good name, actually. Gargano called Larray Mrs. Wargames for being 2-0, got her a trophy with Shotzi Blackheart's head on it, like a troll doll, but still nevertheless. I really like how unique this faction is, with two leaders and a gender split right down the middle. Two men, two women. The segment wasn't as strong as the normal Gargano stuff. He's been on absolute fire recently. 
but they're probably still finding their way together, no pun intended, as a faction. As this was kind of wrapping up, Damien Priest came out and he started talking crap to Gargano and Theory ahead of a tag team match all four of them were supposed to have next week with Leon Ruff being Priest's partner. But as he was doing that, Karrion Cross comes in out of nowhere, shows up, beats the crap out of him, and then powerbombed him through a table on the stage before getting into a car and leaving. A little bit later in the show, Kushida showed up and he offered to be Leon Rush's partner for this match, which is interesting because remember, we were thinking Kushida might be in line for a main event push, possibly as Finn Balor's next challenger. Now he's just another dude in a random tag team feud with Gargano. Maybe they're gonna use Kushida to go after the North American Championship with Gargano. And if they do that, not only is that gonna make sense, that's gonna be a freaking banger, Johnny Gargano and Kushida. Holy crap. I do have a DM slide here, the first of a few on today's show. This one is from Eldred Ryan at Acme, A-K-M-E, Tunes. He said, curious to hear your thoughts on Cross's return on the show. Scarlet's confrontation with Balor and Priest calling her the Smoke Show, a reference to her gimmick and impact, that was great. However, Cross's actual return, return was a big letdown. I completely agree. I don't even think I need to say much more than that. Uh, Scarlet was awesome. Cross was kind of just womp womp. It's like, okay, he returned and beat Priest up. The whole thing about carrying Cross really, I don't want to say the only thing that makes him good, but the thing that makes him the best that he is is the entrance, and it's the atmosphere that surrounds him. And you didn't get that. You just got a guy in a leather jacket kind of running in. Well, anyone can do that. That doesn't make him feel special. I know you can't do the entrance and then have him attack. Like, I get it. It just felt like they could have presented him a better way. Maybe Priest is walking backstage, the lights go out, smoke fills the room, carrying cross attacks him. That's not much harder to do. In fact, it's better way better. And I didn't write that down. That's on a note. I'm just coming up with that. They could have had Priest walk backstage from that segment into a locker room or something and do exactly what I just said. And it's way more impactful. And you're like, man, Karrion Cross is a badass. Maybe there's red lights flashing or whatever the case. Instead, it's just he beat him in broad daylight. And it's like, all right, you're now you're a normal dude. You don't have any of that aura that comes with you, that makes you so cool. Even when Scarlet showed up, yeah, they did the smoke and the red lights for Balor, but she kind of just walked out in broad daylight onto the set. Turn the lights off. Like, why aren't you going that extra mile? I think considering how careful NXT has been with Karrion Cross, for them to kind of do that, it just felt lackluster. You're 100% right, Eldred. Totally on your side there. Uh, it seems obvious what we're gonna get is Dunn facing Balor at New Year's Evil while Cross and Priest have an interim feud, whether they'll have a match on that show or sooner. I hope it's not on that show, actually. I'll explain why in a minute. But uh, they'll have an interim feud and then Cross eventually will go against Balor, I think, uh, early 2021, maybe the first takeover. So that's how I believe the men's picture is going to go while simultaneously you have Kushida working in the North American Championship program. Whether they do that on New Year's Evil or not remains to be seen, but that's the main event of any show. Kushida Gargano, 30 minutes, tear down. You know, I want to see that on the main event of any NXT television show. For the women's side, they were mostly built up through a War Games retrospective video. It was a great package, and it included male and female War Games combatants reflecting on how brutal the matches were. Dakota Kai said that she would be out for a while. Bobby Fish 
tore his tricep and had to have reattachment surgery. And Candice LeRae did indeed break her arm. It's crazy that there were so many injuries. Fish, by the way, I looked it up. It looks like he's out anywhere from eight months to a year with this injury. This guy cannot catch a break. That's actually bad terminology. This guy can't stay healthy. He's 44. I like him a lot. He has been the fourth wheel of that group, of that faction. You start wondering if maybe he needs to move into an agent role or if they do keep Undisputed Era together. Maybe he becomes like the manager, the J.J. Dillon um, of that group. And you kind of let Adam Cole be the flair and everyone else kind of find their roles. Maybe you bring in an additional dude to be the fourth person of Undisputed Era in terms of a wrestling capacity. But all right, let's move on to the women. That's what we're here to talk about. Later in the show, Tony Storm said Ember Moon stole her thunder when she debuted in NXT basically on the same day, which is why she attacked her. Storm said she was focused on the NXT title. And as she said that, Io Shirai showed up backstage and they started brawling out of that area all the way to ringside. Shirai got the upper hand, but Storm ducked out of the ring before Shirai was able to hit her moonsault. Moon came down, attacked Storm at ringside, threw her back into the ring so Shirai could hit the moonsault. This was a great, exciting segment. And it started the questions about what's going to be happening in the women's division going forward that we're going to talk about right now. We had Raquel Gonzalez in the main event going up against Ember Moon. Gonzalez was dominant offensively until Moon hit a tornado suplex off the middle rope and then a tornado DDT. Really, really inventive. She is really working hard since coming back to NXT to be an exciting wrestler with a differentiated uh, moveset. I think Ember Moon has been doing a fantastic job. She then climbed some scaffolding at ringside randomly. It looked like she was going to try to splash Gonzalez into the announce table. Gonzalez pulled her off of it, ran her headfirst into the ring post, and nearly got a three three count. Gonzalez then later caught Moon's eclipse, just midair with pure strength, sent her to absolute hell with a clothesline. And after several reversals, came back with a one-arm scoop choke slam for the huge statement win. By the way, that move needs a name because I don't even know how to describe it most times give that finisher a name. I don't know why that is so hard. Uh, Storm came out afterwards and stood over Moon, only for Rhea Ripley's music to scare her shitless. Storm's reaction was classic. It's going to be a a gif. Really, really funny. Uh, And then Ripley saved Moon from everything that was happening. Ripley then climbed the ropes and stared Gonzalez down before Gonzalez backed off. They talked trash face to face. It was really tense a hot moment to end the show. It does look like we're going to get that as a rematch sooner than later. But we come out of NXT and we do have to take an overview of the women's division. It is one of the most unique, difficult booking scenarios that I can remember from any division in any company. Fans want all of the women, Shirai, Ripley, Moon, Storm, Kai, Gonzalez, Larray, etc., They want all of them to be built strong and not lose matches, especially Moon and Storm, who just came back into NXT. Or Storm, I should say, who just came over to the United States, Moon, who just came back into NXT. The problem is they all have to fight each other. And if they all fight each other and you want clean finishes, that means someone has to lose. NXT clearly wants to push Gonzalez now. So in order to do that, She's going to have to beat people like Moon. But as I said, Moon and Storm just joined NXT. 
So you wonder why they are losing at all, let alone semi-regularly. The answer is because the booking is impossible. Now, we look at what's been set up and nothing is clear because there's so many women they are trying to put into spots. Gonzalez does deserve to be the number one contender. She claimed it in the video package, again in the backstage promo, and then she beat Moon. And it was clean even though she did run her head into the post. But we also had Storm going after Shirai. You would think maybe there's a Storm Moon program coming with Shirai Gonzalez happening at New Year Evil. But now Rhea Ripley's inserted herself. So are they going to have Raquel Gonzalez beat Rhea Ripley? Which is crazy to think about, especially since Ripley's had a really rough 2020 and she just lost to Io Shirai. And then have Gonzalez go up against Shirai and save Storm versus Shirai for the first takeover of 2021. If you do that, Moon and Ripley are left out of anything significant. So again, I'm just booking this forward for you guys to show you how difficult the booking of this women's division actually is. Because there's really not jobbers in the division. I mean, Indy Hartwell is there, she can lose. There's some other women who can lose. But of all those women I just mentioned, and Candice LeRae is injured right now, it seems like Dakota Kai might be as well. They can lose and really not be hurt because they haven't really been strong winners yet. But you don't want either of them to lose. You want to see Candice LeRae as champion. I thought Candice LeRae was going to beat Io Shirai. So that's where we are with the women's division. It's stacked. It's almost overly stacked where you're like, every single person is a potential main eventer. And that's the problem I think they're facing. So I think when you're watching NXT and you're watching the women's matches and you see Tony Storm lose or, or Ember Moon lose, you have to kind of put it in perspective of, well, someone has to lose. And that's the point I wanted to make here. All right, let's break down everything else from NXT. We had Jake Atlas defeat Isaiah Swerve Scott. Really fun match of counters and reversals. Atlas beating Swerve via pinning combination works only because they're building Atlas. But man, Swerve is my dude in this division. So I don't get why they're so slow to make a move. It looks like maybe they're going to be turning him heel. And if they're doing that, okay, that's at least a change in character. It gives a Another reason for the loss to have happened. I also don't know why this guy, Kurt Stallion, is the number one contender. My assumption is all of this has happened on 205 Live, which I'm not watching, but that's up to NXT. I mean, they did have Escobar, Santos Escobar, a couple weeks ago mention that Kurt Stallion was the number one contender, but you've given me no reason on the program I watched to know that. This is the NXT Cruiserweight Championship. So at least show me a highlight package of Kurt Stallion of what he has done to earn a number one contendership. This is also another show where we didn't get Santos Escobar or Legado del Fantasma in the ring. I mean, what are you doing there, right? Like we want them. Now there's other stuff going on. You can't have everyone on every week. I get it. But Escobar's a champion and it it's felt like more than a month where this guy's actually had anything that matters. So they need to kind of make sure they get him on TV. We had a triple threat tag team match. Grizzled young veterans defeating Imperium and Everrise. They used the correct rules in this match, which made me very, very happy out of the gate. Triple threat tag team, three people wrestling at once. That's how it should always be. It was an exciting match that exceeded my expectations with the veterans winning with Ticket to Mayhem. They're the right team to be the new number one contenders. And I guess they're operating a tad more on the face side of tweeners. So it does make sense. Still, this division, it's really not moving me yet. And I'm waiting for them to kind of get it going to their credit. They've introduced many more tag teams than we had about two months ago. But how many of those tag teams really excite you? 
That's the question. There's not really one of them where I'm like, I really want to see them versus them. And I really want to see a great tag team title match. And a lot of these tag teams are heels, yet you have heel champions. So that's all part of the difficulty right now. We also had Tommaso Ciampa defeat Cameron Grimes. Ciampa said he had to know if he could match up to Timothy Thatcher, but he was ready to move forward and shut Grimes up to figure out whether Grimes is confident or insecure. That was in a promo before the match. Thatcher showed up at ringside to distract Ciampa. Grimes eventually hit the Spanish crossbody. Ciampa had him down, but one of Thatcher's students ran in, interfered and distracted Thatcher. He played cat and mouse with Grimes, but eventually hit Willow's Bell for the win in a really well-wrestled match with a solid storyline. Grimes tried to talk shit to Thatcher afterward, so Thatcher just snapped his ankle. Ciampa and Thatcher stared each other down. I'm 100% down for a rematch, as I said on the instant analysis. But if they do a rematch, there is no choice. It must be in the fight pit at New Year's Evil. That is the only way I want to see this match. Later in the show, Tyler Rust, who is that Thatcher trainee, uh, he's also the person who tried to attack Champa. He was about to do an interview when Malcolm Bivens interfered and paid off the business card handout we saw and we mentioned on this podcast from last week. So it was a really good thing to get Bivens involved again. If you remember, he was the manager for Indusure, the tag team that it looked like was going to debut in NXT. And then Indusure kind of got shelved when one of them leaked that Keith Lee won the NXT championship, you know, a couple months ago. I think it was on his Instagram story or something like that. And now they're persona non grata. Now, I think it's a little ridiculous to do that, but they were super, super green. So I mean, they needed more time anyway. I just don't want them off TV just because one guy made a stupid mistake. That's not really fair. And then last but not least, Boa and Zia Lee were bloody, punching wood, bleeding out of their mouths, being beat by kendo sticks, and generally just getting the shit kicked out of them in another one of those video packages. At the end, a woman with a white face and red stripe, I believe it was across her eyes, was shown. So it does seem like it's going to be Karen Q., as the master, for lack of a better term, of this group. The depiction was pretty brutal. WWE really doesn't do stuff like that. I mean, there was a lot of blood and it was unnecessary from the standpoint of they could have shown them being beaten without all of that type of stuff. But it was interesting and I'm still really excited to see where it goes. They have my attention. I mean, you think about Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, right? What's one of the key tenants? Do I have your attention now? Yes, you have my attention, NXT. I want to know, out of nowhere, what you're doing with Boa and Zia Lee, right? Like, who would have said that four months ago? I've always been a Zia Lee fan, but who's really, you know, saying that about them in particular? I'm curious. They're doing a great job building this up. So briefly, before we get to a couple DM slides, let's look ahead to New Year's Evil on January 6th. I should also mention, by the way, that AEW announced they're going to be doing a two-night New Year's bash, I believe it's called, on... I think it's December 30th and January 6th. I'm not going to say AEW is counter-programming NXT, but I would say that's what AEW fans would say NXT was doing if this was the other way around. Just a joke. Uh, I'm excited that both of them are doing a big show. I am actually honestly a little bit upset that they're both going head-to-head on January 6th because when one of them does a big show, it, it pays off, right? Like I would love it if AEW was just doing the December 30th show and NXT was just doing the January 6th show. It is going to be interesting to see whether NXT might decide to double up and maybe do a double uh, New Year's Evil, but we will find out. I don't think they're going to. I think they will they will stick with January 6th. Uh, 
AEW hasn't built up that card, really. I mean, you can make some guesses, but NXT, it kind of seems like they have, and that's what I want to talk about. I don't know if all of these matches will be on the card, but these are the feuds it feels like they are building right now. Finn Balor versus Pete Dunne for the NXT Championship, Io Shirai versus Raquel Gonzalez for the NXT Women's Championship, Tony Storm versus Ember Moon, singles, Champa versus Thatcher rematch, potentially in the fight pit, and then maybe North American Championship, Johnny Gargano against Kushida, and presumably Cruiserweight Championship, Santos Escobar against Kurt Stallion, which again, I don't really know much about. So that is exciting. I mean, that is a really, really strong card. It does kind of take everything down the road a little bit as we can now wade into January 2021. We wonder, will there be a TakeOver Royal Rumble weekend? Are they going to wait maybe until February to do it? We don't know what the TakeOver schedule is going to be like going forward, but it certainly will be interesting. Okay, now a couple DM slides before we get out of here. The first coming from Chad Plasinka at I Don't Exaggerate. He said, regarding NXT, this is the second time in three weeks Ronda Rousey's face on a poster has been front and center during a backstage interview. Tyler Rust, he's saying, I don't know if he's referring to this week or previously. Is there anything to this? I don't think so. Uh, Maybe there is. Ronda Rousey in NXT doesn't make any sense. And I think if you were going to tease Ronda Rousey, you would probably tease it on Raw or SmackDown. So I'm just going to say no. But if they are, and these are some Easter eggs, then great eye by you, and that'd be pretty cool. Uh, I just don't, I don't see why she would be in NXT, unless it is specifically to do a program with the other horsewomen, but you do have Baszler on the main roster, and Jessamyn Duke and Marina Shafir are kind of in this weird thing where they were on Raw Underground, but never kind of officially called up, and you never see them on either brand these days. I don't know exactly what they're doing. I don't know if they're still wrestling, if it's just part-time for them because they both have families. I'm not exactly sure what the plan is with them. We also have Jason Jeter at J Jeter Leo. He said, I feel like NXT consistently puts on the best wrestling show. And as far as pay-per-views go, they're always top-notch. Why do you think that is not reflected in the ratings? And what can they do to bring in a younger audience? So that partially answers your question. It's not reflected in the ratings because they don't have a younger audience. If they had a moderately good younger audience, they wouldn't beat AEW in the demo, but they'd match or beat them in the ratings many weeks. But something happened. And I don't know that I can contextualize it exactly, but before AEW existed, NXT was the chosen brand of North American wrestling fans that were anti-WWE. It was Triple H's baby. The matches were better. The storylines were better. It was great. But I think now that AEW has been created, there's been a large push over to AEW because what better way to be, if you are anti-WWE, what better way to be anti-WWE than not even deal with another brand that that company pays for and, and exists under their umbrella? AEW is truly not WWE, whereas NXT is just another brand that just happens to be very different from the main product. So I don't know, really. I I know that there's a lot, there was a little bit of a groundswell for independent wrestling among younger fans over the last few years with Bullet Club. My guess is that AEW has just really been able to tap into that audience and bring them along. I don't necessarily think AEW's storylines are younger skewing. They do have a couple characters, best friends, 
Orange Cassidy, John Moxley maybe, who can tug at that audience. But I just think what it is, and I don't really think it's anything about NXT. I think it's that people want an alternative to WWE and they see AEW as that alternative. We talk about it all the time on this podcast. AEW is not countering NXT. NXT is not countering AEW despite going head to head with it. They are very different products. What AEW is closest to is the WWE product. You may like it better. You may think they do things in a better way, but their storylines, the TV show, some of the gimmicks and things that they do, it is way closer aligned to a WWE Raw or WWE SmackDown show than it is NXT. So I think if you're, if you look at the Raw and SmackDown ratings and you look at the AEW ratings, the demo, the younger demo is very similar. I don't know what it is. I don't really look at ratings to that degree, but that that's what I feel like it is. There may be people who watch Raw, SmackDown and AEW and don't watch NXT for all we know. I just don't have those answers. So I don't know what NXT can do. I mean, maybe the answer is become more like Raw and SmackDown, but if they do that, then it loses everything that makes it so interesting and attractive. I don't want a third one of those shows that basically gives me the same type of product three nights a week. I want NXT. I want it to be a little bit more grungy, a little bit darker, um, really more serious wrestling. I want takeovers to blow me out of the water. And I don't know really what they can do to kind of bring up that youth. I don't think that there's an answer. I don't think they have a character issue. I don't think if you had, you know, older dudes there like Samoa Joe and Shinsuke Nakamura and all, if Bobby Roode, if all those guys came back, I don't think suddenly NXT would be popular, but maybe there are things they can do. Maybe they could bring Aleister Black back down, who's on the younger side. Maybe Chad Gable can come in and they can push him as a main eventer. Maybe people would get really excited about that. So I just think it's always about finding that one wrestler, that one storyline that really, really draws people. SmackDown ratings are up. Why are SmackDown ratings up? Well, on one hand, some people are, yeah, tired of the pandemic and they were staying away from WWE, but they also heard that Roman Reigns is back and he's awesome. And you want to see Roman Reigns. Is this really as good as people say it is? And then you watch it like, wow, it really is. So then you're watching every single week all of a sudden. So I think with NXT, it's really just as simple as that. You got to find the storyline, the main event storyline, a couple characters that are really going to pull at your strings and get you to watch. AEW has that. They have John Moxley, Kenny Omega, Cody, the Young Bucks. Those guys all draw a lot of viewers. And AEW for many weeks was not putting them all on the show at the same time, which was crazy. But now that they do, and you basically saw it last night with the exception of Moxley, but instead of that, you got Sting, right? Uh, when AEW does that, they pop really big ratings. So I think that's all it is. Give people things that will get them excited. And right now, NXT, despite being good wrestling, and if you think they're the best week-to-week show right now, then that's your prerogative. I happen to think SmackDown is just because it's a combination of wrestling that has improved. But again, the best storyline in wrestling right now is going on on SmackDown. NXT might be the most consistent in terms of an in-ring product week-to-week. But whatever your preference, you're going to like and watch that show. None of these are going anywhere. NXT could start, could drop to 600,000 weekly, never do better. And, and it's still going to do better than whatever else USA Network would have in that time slot. And WWE still wants it there because it's still siphoning off some percentage of viewers from AEW. So I'm not worried about that with NXT. I don't think AEW should really think twice about it, but it's all cyclical, right? WCW was winning the ratings war. 
and crushing WWE and younger viewers because they had the NWO and yeah, they had Sting and they had Goldberg and things were great. And then WWE had Steve Austin, The Rock, Degeneration X, and a lot of other people, Trish Stratus, and all of a sudden the momentum swung. So that's really all it is. NXT needs to find its big time stars. I don't think there'll be crossovers, but they need to find people that NXT will draw viewers in to watch. And that's the simplest way that I can put it. So thank you all for listening to this week's edition of Getting Over Covering the Wednesday Night Wars, NXT, AEW, and this week a little bit of impact mixed in as well. It has been a wild two weeks. Folks, last week, man, our 100th episode spectacular with Brian Campbell and Nick Costos. That was great. Jack Crosby joined me to kind of break down Winter is Coming. This week, we had the Renee Paquette interview on Wednesday. We also had instant analysis from NXT TakeOver Wargames this past Sunday, and the month is only going to continue being awesome. We will have our first ever Getting Over Awards coming up soon. I'm finalizing those categories. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast so you can nominate people for the categories and so you can vote as well. All of that information will be there. We're going to have a Getting Over Award show. We're going to be doing next week TLC Ultimate Preview and then TLC Instant Analysis the following Sunday. There's still a couple of interviews I'm working on getting. Those may potentially fall through. They were pretty big names and I don't know if they're going to happen, but I hope to have at least one more interview before we are out in 2020. So thank you all once again for listening. It has been a great year, a great month. There's still more to come. Be sure to subscribe if you're a first-time listener. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a damn five-star rating and review. Let us know how much you love this damn show. As you can tell, the Silver King has been talking for over an hour by myself right now. The voice is going, so I'm just going to leave you with three final words. Bye for now.